Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome, everyone, to the Evoking History Podcast. With me this week is an associate professor at Marquette University who focuses on early Atlantic American history as well as Native American history, Dr. Brian Rindfleisch. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, you were giving me the thumbs up about pronouncing the last name. I appreciate it. Uh, full disclosure, I have worked with Dr. Ryan Fleisch. Um, he was actually the first professor that I TA'd an American history course for, gosh, like three years ago now, maybe longer than that. He recently released a book on the University of Alabama Press, George Galfin's Intimate Empire, Family Trade and Colonialism in Early America. And he's been kind enough to join us today. How are you doing, Brian? Doing wonderful, Ben. Good to see you. Or I should say, good. Well, I'm seeing you, but yeah, good to talk well, to you, too. <laughs> uh, yes, good to see you and talk to you as well. Um, so for the, our listeners who don't know, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background, um, how you got interested in doing the history that you do, where you earned your degree, that kind of thing. Love that question. Thank you. Um, so I actually went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire for my undergrad, uh, and as a typical history major, didn't know that I wanted to do history. Um, and what I did, um, I had the benefit of um, Eau Claire has one of the um, most systematic uh, American Indian studies programs uh, in the nation. And it's largely focused on the Ojibwa uh, and the Anishinaabe. And I didn't know that at the time, but uh, a lot of my interests intersected with both of those. And so um, I did a dual major in history and American Indian studies. And uh, my main mentor for that was Dr. Richard St. Germain, um, who had a huge impact on my life and sort of making me reconsider history, um, obviously through a different lens, a different history, and a different people, uh, but in challenging a lot of my narratives like we do in history classes today. He was the one that set me up for that and sort of propelled me and prepared me to um, encourage me uh, to go into um, graduate study. And so from there, um, I actually did my uh, master's at Marquette, um, and those mentors as well prepared me a lot for getting sort of a broad, comprehensive knowledge um, in which I could situate my own American Indian history and understandings within that. And then I was propelled out there where um, to the University of Oklahoma, where I did my PhD in Native American history. Uh, so it's been it's been a long trajectory, but it's it's kind of wonderful actually that it's been at Eau Claire. I was able to focus on Anishinaabe um, and be mentored by those communities. And then to take a break from that, go into a master's and do sort of like the broad historical work, the broad narrative, and then to get even more specific when I went um, to work uh, with the Creek Muscogee communities uh, in Oklahoma for the PhD. Excellent. Now, when you, and this probably reflects more on my own understanding of things than it does the, the reality of them. But generally, when you see, at least in popular media, people who are, are talking about indigenous history, often it seems to fall more into the anthropology and the archaeology camp uh, as opposed to the history. Now, having the benefits of, of working with you and, and working with some other people at, at other institutions that I've been at, I do know that there is indigenous historians out there who are, who are doing that. But did you have to make that decision yourself or did you know that you were going to be a historian the entire way through? I did not know that. In fact, before I was actually going to go to the master's program, I was actually going to go work um, with some tribal nations in New York uh, as part of a nonprofit group. And I had to make the tough decision, uh, do I want to do that? Do I want to work with some of the Haudenosaunee nations uh, coming out of college? Or do I want to pursue graduate work? Um, and that is probably the biggest decision that I've had to make in my life. My wife would probably disagree with me. Um, but <laughs> Uh, for me, that was like the crux of the issue. Do I want to do the work from within academia or from outside of academia? Um, and I didn't know that decision would reflect that at the time, but it came to be, this is where I'm 
wonderful thing about um, being here back in Wisconsin is that I'm able to actually do a lot of work with um, communities like the Oneida, uh, mm-hmm. communities like uh, the Menominee, and again, some Shinami nations here, um, which is something that I don't know I would have had the opportunity with uh, if I went out to New York. Sure, sure. What was it like transitioning from the the tribal nations that you studied and worked with here going into Oklahoma? Uh, like a clean slate. Um, but it was actually very, very incredibly useful because, right, how many nations are in the United States today? 579 going on 580 some. Um, and so having that experience with the Anishinaabe and the Great Lakes, um, like specifically for me, I was attached to the Lakota uh reservation and community. Um, but to be able to transition to other nations and make yourself not just relatable, but at the same time understand, right, the most important thing is your story. And your story is not the Couture's story, right? It's a Creek, a Muscogee, or Coweta's story. Um, and making that available to others and knowing, you know, just the ins and outs of what it is to introduce yourself and make yourself familiar and make other people comfortable with who you are being, obviously, um, a non-Indian person. Um, and having that experience and being able to... Um, conduct yourself that way mm-hmm. if that makes sense no it does it really does and i think that it it is something that uh, as historians we often don't conceive of because either we're we are disconnected uh, and to borrow a phrase from another colleague of ours sometimes i think people fall into being you know ethnographic warriors of this communities that they study and not really interacting with them um, in legitimate ways. And that would have been me, honestly. That would have been me with me if I did not do an American Indian Studies uh, major, along with my history major. Because that that program, my mentors in that program, they exposed me not just to the things you mentioned, right, like anthropology, archaeology, history, but also Ojibwa language, uh, Ojibwa culture, uh, Ojibwa um, song and dance. Um, also, um, to this day, I was the worst at it, um, but we had to do a weaving project to try to incorporate elements of weaving into the history and the culture of what we're learning of the people. Um, and being in contact with Le Couture, Um I worked also with um, an investigative reporter out at Le Couture. His name is Paul Demain. Uh, and he was part of my research project. He put me into contact and helped um, change the ways in which I actually did research. Um, but yeah, all of those experiences shaped who I am today. And if it had not been for that American Indian Studies major, I'd just be your typical historian. And unfortunately, like a lot of people probably in our field, still um, replicating some of the, uh, the damaging relationships that we have with indigenous communities today. Yeah. So when you got out to Oklahoma, it's, was the research you did for your dissertation, has that turned into the, the book you just released or is that a separate research? No, you're absolutely right. Um, it was funny enough because, uh, well, for our listeners, Ben is also um, going through the same process right now uh, in terms of coming to a dissertation topic that is completely unaffiliated with what you did um, for your master's topic or even um, maybe some undergraduate research. So everything was new and I sort of had to hit the ground running from the very beginning, uh, much as you're doing right now, Ben, with a completely different topic. Completely different continent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yes. Well, do you want to speak to that a little bit and just tell our, our listeners what it was that you did before you, you know, before you developed what eventually became your dissertation? Yeah. So, um, funny enough, the undergraduate research that I did was largely targeting um, the American Indian movement uh, and the um, the murder uh, of a uh, an indigenous activist, a Mi'kmaq woman by the name of Annie Mae Pitu Akwash. Um, and at the time that I was doing that research, it was very sensitive. Um, a lot of the American Indian movement leadership was still alive, and a lot of the American Indian movement um, membership at the time was very heavily invested or not invested uh, in that woman. Um, so I moved away from that, and I actually my master's program did um, focused on the American Revolution and loyalist families. And that set the ground for um, family being sort of a grounding construct for me moving forward into the PhD. And so I went to Oklahoma specifically to work with uh, Joshua Piker, uh, or Dr. Piker, um, who works uh, largely on the Creek Muscogee history 
And so naturally being his student, I worked on Creek Muscogee history. Uh, but the more and more I dove into that history in several research seminars um, and various classes, uh, is that this one individual just constantly stood out in all of this correspondence, but I've never heard uh, of him. No one's ever, I mean, the famous phrase that often get, and Colin Calloway said this fast is, yeah, I know that name, but I really don't know anything about him. Like, who is he? But I've run across him in the sources. And so I made it um, sort of my project to investigate and sort of make this guy's story my own. Uh, and little did I know that this story would cross continents, um, let alone um, encompass sort of these cross-cultural dimensions. Uh, the Golfin family um, was uh, Creek and Muskogee, but it was also Irish. Uh, it was English or, or Anglo. Uh, it was also African or African-American. Uh, and so these various sort of threads and different stories and narratives and families came together in this one book, which luckily enough for me, turned itself into a book. Yeah. And yeah, what was the uh, roughly the time period that the, the Galfin family was active and where were they operating? So Galfin family is uh, largely in um, Georgia uh, and South Carolina. Um, and their heyday is sort of like the 1750s uh, till the end of the American Revolution. Uh, Golfin establishes himself as one of the leading Indian traders and merchants in all of North America. Um, the best equivalent that I have is um, he carves out his own niche within the British Empire as basically being William Johnson in the South. And he will ultimately enlist his family, or most of his family, on the side of the revolutionaries um, during the war. But I mean, the guy, his family starts out in just these poverty-stricken conditions in colonized Ireland in Ulster at the, uh, the beginning of the 18th century. I mean, he literally left his family in the hopes of trying to bring them over if he made it um, in um, this very boom and bust uh, trade known as the Indian trade. Um, but he was one of the few who did actually um, emerge from that rather wealthy. And so then he was able to bring his family over. Excellent. So this is... In a lot of ways, then, not only is it an early American story, but it's a story of, Amer of British Empire, and so a very much colonial story. Absolutely. Great segue, by the way. <laughs> uh, because um, family for me, and the sort of like the, the one thing that I was able to sort of make a novel argument or bring to the table was uh, that family was not just cross-cultural, of course, right? But the family connections that the Gulf and himself and the family brought to bear um, really carved out empire in the South, uh, especially in Georgia and South Carolina, where empire is very haphazard at best. You got the Spanish in Florida, you got the French in Louisiana, you got the powerful Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw nations, which why um, the colony of Georgia can never expand beyond their borders that they have. Um, but the man who sort of makes things happen in the South for all of those various peoples, uh, for the British Empire, but also for the Spanish and the French, and also for the Creek, and especially the Creek town of Kuida, is Gulfin. Because he's got all of these family ties that exist all over the empire and within um, uh, Indian country. So he's the one that a lot of things have to sort of pivot around. So that's why his story is so important. I'm reminded of the book Forced Founders uh, and how it talks about the the situation in colonial Virginia. And, and the reason I, I bring that up is because you mentioned that Georgia was never truly able to expand. And you see that in, in Forced Founders, for those of you who haven't read it, because there's this pressure because you still have colonists and indentured servants are arriving. And when they are freed from their terms of labor, there's nowhere for them to go. So it creates all this tension within the colony. Was it similar in Georgia or was it slightly different? It was slightly different um, because Gulfin himself will be the one who will negotiate several treaties um, in after the Seven Years' War. And one of these is the Treaty of Augusta of 1773. And that forces um, Creek peoples, and I, I do use, this is the turn for me in 1773, where Galvin starts to manipulate his clan ties uh, and his family ties with the Creeks in favor of empire. Whereas there had been a balance up to that point. He'd been able to play each other off against one another placate his family relatives at the same time that, that he could placate imperial authorities. 1773 is the dividing line where Galfin throws everything in uh, with the British Empire and not the Creeks. And it seeds three million acres. He manipulates those clan ties and those family ties to Kuita to make the session happen. Uh, and in doing so, um, you see the settler wave from Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia into what is called the seeded lands, into those lands that were um, uh, given by the Creeks 
or I should say, actually taken from the Creeks by the British Empire. Okay. And I, I think, uh, not to gloss over the point, uh, I want to make it very clear for uh, our, our listeners. When you say family, he was actually had married into the, the Creek tribe. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, he married into uh, the Creek family, a specific Creek family from the town of Kalita, which is a political center for the Creek nation. Um, they're among the lower creeks, so they're always in tension with the upper creek towns. Uh, but Kalita is one of the most important and has been for a century at that point. And he marries into the family of Chigeli, who used to be one of the leading uh, Mikos or headmen for that town. And he married a woman by the name of Matane, and through her, she was connected, or he was connected to her clan and family relations. And uh, the most important leaders and friends for Golfin uh, were two men, uh, brothers, Escochape and Sempoyafe of Kawita, who really lead um, the politics of Kawita and the Lower Creeks throughout the 18th century up until the Revolution. That's really fascinating. Um, you also mentioned that there, there were ties to African-American, uh, which I assume is through the slave trade. Um, what were those connections there? Uh, so uh, Galpin is a figure that you learn uh, to love to hate um, because he's like other southern plantation owners at the same time. Right. He's a southern slave owner, owned over 250 slave um, peoples at this time. So he enslaved wow. those people both from Africa as well as those who were born in the Americas. And um, I am convinced, and actually the biggest pushback that I have received on this project from my reviewers and from readers and from the audience and from scholars, is that I believe that he sexually exploited African-American women and African women. Uh, Nidahucky, Sappho, Rose, Bryn, Clarissa. Um, and actually a lot of Southern scholars are resistant to that idea, and I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure many people can think of why, but I'm like, we are scholars of the South. And the, the scholarship of the South related to that has really moved forward into the 21st century in recognizing, yeah. right, the violence of these relationships. And I draw a lot of my inspiration from um, uh, black female scholars like Marissa Fuentes, uh, who talks about dispossessed lives uh, in, the, um, uh, in the West Indies and what it is so difficult to recreate these relationships. It's not hard to fathom that there's a power dynamic at play here that really favors golfing. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, there's a love. Um, the one thing that people do know about Galvin is that he had the most extensive last will and testament that was ever recorded in the South. And he did free the children uh, of his relationships with these enslaved women. And for some reason, that has put him on a pedestal of some kind, which I don't understand. Um, and while there's no actual documentary evidence of violence, he did sell people to the West Indies. And I know he employed overseers to lash out. Uh, what was the whip? And so I cannot fully understand why people have this this love relationship with Galvin that he did not sexually exploit these women when, in my mind, it's 100 percent sure. Yeah, that that seems rather incongruous. Uh, a pedestal out of the gutter is just a, a curb. So I don't really understand why <laughs> <laughs> there is such a uh, an elevation of him. What was his relation with the other powers in the in the region? Because you talked about that, you know, you had um, Spanish Florida and, and the, 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 the French in Louisiana, at least at the, at the beginning of, of this. So and you he had to have had some kind of dealing with them or at least people within his family, maybe not him himself. Maybe he left that to his his creek relations. I, I'm not sure what was going on. So for the French, he's – yes. So for the French and Spanish, actually, he is working through his Creek relations. Um, Galvin has a transatlantic business empire in Deerskins that runs the gamut of the entire world. And so he's working oftentimes by proxy or sometimes by himself uh, in contact with Spanish merchants and French merchants. And that necessitates sometimes dialogue with French and Spanish imperial authorities – and then oftentimes he's often working through um, those family members like Escochape and Sempoyafe who are actually going into French territory and into Spanish territory to negotiate these things. And, but at the same time, I mean, I got records that he's just selling cattle to Spanish garrisons in Pensacola and Mobile, you know, just mm -hmm. at the same time that he's supposed to be representing these forces of British Empire at the same time. So um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was so, far away. It's one tie and untangle from that, right? Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. Um, what was your, were his connections back to Ulster? Uh, great. Um, so you mentioned that this is really much a colonial story as well, and it is, because um, 
his story is also one of immigration. And he sort of, he really encapsulates that wave uh, of 18th century Ulster immigration that starts to peak after the Seven Years' War and into the, uh, the 19th century, but then sort of tapers off after that. And then it really becomes, you know, your Catholic um, sort of what is today the Republic of Ireland immigration. Uh, but in the 18th century, the Ulster immigration wave is the largest wave coming from Ireland. And he swept up within that in the 1730s to find uh, trade or employment to help keep his family afloat. And then throughout the course of the 18th century, he's constantly bringing over family members from Ulster uh, and bringing them over. So like he resettles two of his sisters and their entire families uh, at his Silver Bluff plantation. He brings over uh, cousins like the Pooler family. Uh, who become sort of his important merchant contacts. And so constantly he's just bringing waves of family over and sort of, again, encapsulating that immigration uh, peak for Ulster, uh, Ulster Irishmen during the 18th century. Okay. So the time that this guy was active, you say that the time that he really kind of pushes everything to the side of the British is after the end of the Seven Years' War. What, how did the war affect him and his empire? quote unquote his empire yeah well he came out really well on top uh coming out of the seven years war he became the main british agent uh both politically and economically for the deerskin trade so he was sitting really pretty but what happened after 1763 though is that the deerskin trade experiences a deregulation by the empire and so you have all of what had been formerly licensed traders of the british empire conducting the trade in creek towns he was a resident agent in Kuwaita, so he was able to maintain those relationships in Kuwaita and get to know the people. After 1763, you have this wave of unlicensed traders that the only one thing in mind is to make a profit. And so there's this lack of intimate connections that existed between these incoming traders and the Creeks, and they're undermining Gulfin's trade and his connections with the Creeks. And so he starts to play dirty at this point. He starts to replicate a lot of these disreputable trade practices and starting to take advantage of his Creek customers and later family members, which really starts to pivot around that in his mind, how far are the limits of family? Do they really sure. extend to those Creek peoples? Yes, to the sons that were born as Creek women. So John and George and Judith, uh, those three members were Creek and remained part of his family and remained part of the profits that he made. But Sepoyafe, Escochape, even his wife, Matani, they start to get cut out at that point. Hmm. Yeah, I can see why he would grow to love to hate this guy. Um, yeah, very much so. So you mentioned that he leaves one of the, uh, the most intricate wheels or the longest wheels in the South. What happens to the system that he set up after his death? Great question, actually. That's, that's a wonderful question. Um, he actually bequeathed it uh, to a, a cousin, or excuse me, a nephew from Ulster, his two Creek sons, George and John, because he hoped that they could sort of like stabilize relationships in Creek country. His other son, Thomas Golfin, who was born uh, of another promiscuous relationship that he had. Uh, and then um, uh, another nephew by the name of David uh, Holmes, who is also from Ulster. Um, but the thing about what happens to that company is during the revolution, Holmes uh, actually sides with the British, whereas all of Galvin's sons sides with the revolutionaries. And so that splits the, um, uh, what becomes known as Galvin, Holmes, and Company in half. And then from that, uh, the revolution just completely upends the deerskin trade and never recovers. Mm -hmm. And so all of these deerskin traders that had sort of like rushed into this trade during the 18th century start to owe exorbitant sums of money to British, Spanish, and French merchants. And so after the revolution, especially the British merchants start come calling and they just eviscerate Galvin Holmes and company. And there's nothing left of the profits that uh, Galvin had made over the course of his lifetime. Oh, all right. A rather ignominious end. Oh, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> so was it just the fact that you kept running across his name in the archives and didn't really know anything about him that attracted you to to this story, or was there something else that when you began to investigate it that really hooked you? It was that was the start uh, because I knew everyone, anybody who does anything in Creek history uh, during the 18th century knows something about this guy, but it's just like he's elusive. You can't find anything about him. Uh, and so I'm like, I was determined from the very beginning as I continued to dig more and more. I'm like, there's a story here. 
Uh, and even um, when I was doing uh, my dissertation, uh, one of uh, my colleagues and friends, Michael Morris, actually wrote a book about Gotham, the uh, only book up to that point about it. Uh, and even he was very uh, quick to realize that there's a story that I'm only scratching the surface of. Mm-hmm. You know, like he was not able to go to Ireland and do that research. Uh, he was not able to like get into actually the Creek history side of things. Like he was very much his story was an imperial story. Sure. And so realizing that there was sort of that ways in which we still could dig that out. And I guess the one thing that my book in its limited time uh, that it's been out, uh, the one thing that I've been really humbled by is that these senior scholars have been reaching out to me by email and by phone and just saying, and you did this in ways that I didn't think you could actually do it. Like they basically said, I doubted you would be able to do this. Not to say that I wouldn't support you along the way, um, but I didn't think you could actually get at the full story the way that you did. And so like that has been the biggest praise for me. Uh, this is not to mention the uh, the criticisms that come along with that as well, I'm sure, uh, which my senior scholars have pointed out as well, uh, which are rightfully so. Uh, but that has been like sort of like the big praise for me. Um, but the other thing about that is like family continued to come back for me. I remember yeah. sitting down with my dissertation advisor and he's like, so you keep mentioning family. I'm like, huh, you're right. And it's probably not a coincidence that I keep talking about family in my master's program and in my PhD program. So there's something here. And yeah. I was luckily enough to be validated by that. It could have gone the exact opposite way, right? Sure. It could not have been a story about family. And in fact, like, you can't talk about Galfin because he didn't leave much of his written records behind without talking about the family and the people who talked about him. And that's largely the research base it's not about what Galfin left behind, but it's about what everybody else left behind about Galfin. Yeah, so kind of that uh, the phrase that we historians like to use, reading between the archives, reading between the source material. Yeah. And I, I think it's really another interesting thing, and full disclosure, I haven't read the book. I've just had the pleasure of, of hearing Dr. Ryan Fleisch talk about it on, on several different occasions. Don't you dare buy it. You can borrow a copy. I only have one. So um, don't you dare buy it. And plus, you got way more better things to read right now. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff. I don't have as much stuff to read as I did last summer. So <laughs> when I was preparing for DQEs. But um, one of the – that return to family and just showing family, especially during this time, I, I think that there is a sense that the families are across – um, communities were not as interconnected as they are. That there is this sense that the the native peoples and the the British or the colonists were were more separated than they are. And of course, we know that's not true. But it was just that whole: how much do you acknowledge these relationships with the indigenous people? And that is one of the the things that I really love about your work. Is it shows how truly intertwined these relationships were even if ultimately Galvin did choose the British for whatever reason uh, over his indigenous family. Right. And this is the larger battle that uh, myself and others, um, both non-Indian as well as indigenous scholars, have been fighting when it comes to um, Southern history. And just getting, um, because obviously Southern history, you evoke that, and it's about civil war, um, it's about slavery, race relations to this day, rightfully so. Uh, but at the same time, recognizing that another part of the story that needs to be talked about when we talk about Southern history is not just the indigenous peoples who were there first, of course, but the indigenous peoples, as you just spoke to this, who are intricately a part of that story for centuries and still are a part of that story for centuries uh, right now. Yeah, that's a, it's really interesting. Uh, as, as somebody who grew up in Kentucky along the um, original route for the, the Trail of Tears, uh, so the Indian removal of the 1830s there is always this sense and a a a wish to reclaim some small part of that indigenous history by going oh well we have it's always cherokee we have cherokee Cherokee grandmother somewhere yeah yeah exactly so you know which in a lot of ways became coded for to deny the illicit relations with enslaved african-american peoples so you know um and, and so just that – and you see that here in, in Galton's story, that you do have the, these three parts of you know, the, the white, red, and brown um, here all together in this one family, which I do not think is unique, but it's just often not talked about. Yes, 
especially and it, like you like you said, especially when it comes to Southern history. Mm-hmm. Like we've sort of had these. I, mean, I shouldn't say we've had these conversations, but a lot of the scholarship that was done before the South had sort of come into to its own in what is called the Native South was done in like the Great Lakes with the Haudenosaunee uh, in New York and Canada, and now. We finally arrived there in the South, but at the same time, it's getting other Southern historians to jump on board and finally be like, oh, wait, we got to take this seriously. And maybe, oh, wait, we should probably teach this. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a, like I said, somebody from the South who, who grew up there, um, and I, I will not speak to Southern historians uh, because I do think that there is a lot of good scholarship and there are a lot of great historians, but there is still a 10. There is it still is too much lost cause narrative in a lot of the the southern at least popular history and i think that does bleed out into other areas as whether it's southern indigenous history or what have you yeah absolutely so uh do you think that you will continue doing research into galfin now that the you're done with the book or if not where do you Think you're going to be focusing your research going forward it's like you've done this before ben these are great questions <laughs> thank you uh, i'm actually i am done with golfing uh, <laughs> it's no done and done uh, i do not want to talk or talk about this guy ever again because um yeah uh, but it's interesting what i actually set out to do before the dissertation was i, I ran across golfing a lot um but i was also running across those names and uh, Escochape of Kalita. Uh, those two brothers. And I know I couldn't talk about Galfin's story without talking about them, but I actually wanted to do their story. But my dissertation advisor rightfully said, like, if you think you can't get Galfin's story, do you really think you're going to be able to get their story? I'm like, you're probably right. Um, But actually, over the course of this research um, for the book, um, and now the course of the research that I was doing for the second book, I actually put the second book in hiatus. And I actually um, went through all of my research that I've accumulated up to this point. I'm like, you know, I'm curious, can I actually write their story? And I have to give credit where credit is due. I was actually at an Omohundro, uh, Omohundro Institute conference in Pittsburgh last summer. And I was talking with three, uh, three friends, uh, Liz Ellis, Brooke Bauer, and um, James Hill. And I've known James because James does a lot of uh, history between the Creek and the Spanish in Havana or Cuba. Oh. And he know, he's one of the few people who actually knows anything about Sepoyafe and Escochape, one of the few people who cares. Uh, and he, because I've done conference presentation on these guys for years, and he just comes up to us. He looks at me. He looks like, oh, you're on the program. Oh, you're presenting on them again. He's like, you're getting a lot of work out of these two guys. You might as well just write the book. And I'm like, huh, that's a good idea. And yeah. so I'm, I'm working on their story. And actually, it all comes back to family again. And mm-hmm. now it's fun to actually put Galfin as the peripheral actor now. Like, yeah. he's not the be-all, end-all for this family. He's just one ways in which they're trying to navigate empire, one family tie. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun of actually sort of like flipping the script and actually fronting the story or their narrative that I wanted to do from the very beginning and being much more confident in being I can actually tell that story now. And it's a lot more, whereas Galfin's story was a little bit about clan and more about family ties from a Eurocentric view, yeah. everything comes back to clan and a different understanding of family with these two men. How long were they alive? Uh, Throughout most of the 18th century. um, They disappear from the archives, from the documentary records after the revolution, unfortunately. Okay. So I know that Escochape dies in 1780 uh, when he comes back from Spanish Cuba, uh, or when he he greets a Creek delegation coming back from Spanish Cuba. I think he catches some kind of disease. We don't know. Because he simply meets them, goes back to Cuida, and dies. Uh, but his brother Sempoyafi just disappears. We don't, unfortunately, know what happens to him. Yeah, that's a shame. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a very fascinating story. But the the, the reason that I asked is because I was wondering, you know, if them or their offspring survived into the Jackson whatnot in the region, and then uh, you know the the Creek Wars and and the unmitigated. Um, nigenocidal white American response to the Native Americans of the region? I, I guarantee it because they both had several sons um, and daughters. But unfortunately, when the British were 
paying attention, they only paid attention to those two. Um, this yeah. is the thing about the documents when it comes, right, especially to the scholarship related to indigenous women. The only reason that I was able to discover Matani's name is because she was attached to an Anglo guy. Like, yeah. we, like, the British really don't care about indigenous women or, like, the progeny, right, or the children. So mm-hmm. the only reason that I know the name of one of their children, uh, Limpicky, is because he killed or took place in one of the so-called massacres of um, British settlers at the Long Canes in 1764. And so he was very uh, hostile toward the British and so he was put on the British radar, but that's the only um, son or uh, daughter's name that I have from them. Right. So, but I guarantee you they're surviving into the removal era, and they're sure. experiencing and surviving that experience as well. Yeah, that has to be, uh, you know, uh, I, and I often think about this. Uh, for those of you who have listened for a while, I rarely talk about anything that I've done, but I used to focus much more heavily on African history and, and you know, it's not a perfect one-to-one relationship, but just hearing the the relation of British towards Native peoples here, you can kind of say about British towards Native peoples in a lot of other places too. This is why we first bonded, right? Like this is this is the conversation that uh, the global connection that we see when it comes to Indigenous experiences. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, so that sounds like it's going to be a you know, I, do you have a, a timeline for, for your research on that? I mean, especially with the COVID crisis, that has thrown everybody's research into shambles, I think is the word I'll use. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, crazy enough, the research is all done um, because I had a lot of it done, but I also, in uh, I spent the last summer, I uh, had a bunch of um, the ability to go to a bunch of places and archives before all of this hit. So I did a lot of the research for the second book. And fortunately, a lot of that um, was about them as well. So I actually had all the research there. I just didn't know it. And I started to put the pieces together. And I'm like, I got this. I can't believe I do have this. And so I've actually um, written a manuscript already for the second book. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, it's actually out to readers um, right now. So we'll see what happens. That's amazing. I'm very happy to hear that. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. you. It's uh, quite crazy. yeah, this past year has been a whirlwind um, for all of us in many different ways. Yes. So what is it like, not necessarily transferring your own personal research into the classroom, but teaching indigenous history to primarily white students? Yeah, great question. Um, so the most important thing about um, being a non-Indian doing um, indigenous history and again, this is only because of my experiences with the Anishinaabe mentors that I had, is that it all comes down to community relationships. Um, and so from the very get-go, before I even taught at Marquette, uh, that summer I was um, reaching out, um, and not like in the face reaching out, but like putting feelers out there. Um, I luckily had the uh, the friendship of a woman by the name of Jacqueline Tramp, who, teach, or who is at uh, in the Office of Public Affairs here at Marquette, and she has her pulse on... I mean, she's been here for well over a decade. She's been at Marquette assisting Native students, been a part of all these indigenous organizations. Uh, so she was wonderful in putting me in contact with several community figures. Uh, and luckily, uh, those community figures were always willing um, and have always been willing to come into the classroom or to allow my classroom to go out uh, into various Native events uh, that are being hosted, whether that's Indian summer during the um, in August uh, or going out to the Indian Community School out in Franklin, Wisconsin, um, to take part in whatever they're doing. Um, so that's been the most beneficial thing. And the one thing that I think um, that students need the most is to have an actual indigenous presence in the classroom. Because again, being non-Indian, they're not going to get that from me. As much as I can talk about it, unless people are coming into the classroom or we're taking the classroom out into the community itself, they're not going to get that. And that sort of, it sort of reinforces what I'm able to give them. Um, and again, if they learn anything about indigenous history in the first place, um, it's going to be pretty, pretty superficial at best. And so every time I'm teaching this class, it's basically me teaching the same class over and over to a new group of students and basically just being, hey, this is what you've been taught. Let's go back to the very beginning and let's disrupt that. And let's talk about, you know, how the past has impacted the present of indigenous communities around you um, uh, and here in Milwaukee today. So that's been 
it's it's a subversive class to teach, which I love um, doing subversive activity. Um, but at the same time, it's something that I have to do over and over every class, um, which has its challenges and can be draining at times. But at the same time, is the biggest payoff for me as a, an instructor. Yeah. Well, especially in a place like this where there are so many native names associated and around that, you know, if you are from this area or, or even if you're from an area like I am, um, Kentucky, there's all kinds of native names around there. The, the biggest town, when I usually tell people I'm from, I come from a small town called Salem, which had a population of 800 until I moved away. And, but the closest big city was Paducah which was supposedly named for a mythological chief Paduk. Uh, So it's one of those things. So, you know, when you, if if you are surrounded by these native names or even, and often also native mascots for things that you don't have any consciousness of, I I think it's really important. And and you're right. It is subversive because it's making you think about why we use these names for this stuff, but not other things. And, And all the, the fault are all around naming. Yeah. And it, what I, what I've come to really appreciate about some of our students here at Marquette, uh, either being from up North Wisconsin or Milwaukee or Illinois is that they actually do have a personal connection through their families who have experienced certain events, whether it's casinos, mascots, right? Marquette's own mascot, uh, especially with our alumni base. Holy cow. Um, or especially my up north uh, students who are um, their family members have very strong feelings about the walleye wars of the 80s and the 90s, right, when Tommy Thompson was governor. Um, but to sort of like reach the next generation and tell them, hey, this is why these things happen. And I actually have my students have conversation with their family members and their grandparents about, hey, this is why you're angry. But at the same time, this is why you shouldn't have been angry. And this is who you should have actually been angry at. Yeah. Um, talking about why there's these things called treaties that made these things um, a reality. Why they could do something like spearfish out of season, which, I mean, I know it's a huge deal for spearfish or for uh, fishing sportsmen, and I know it's a lucrative uh, market, but at the same time, did not dip into the population of the fish whatsoever. But that became the lightning rod for actually precipitating violence against Anishinaabe communities in the 80s and 90s. That's well, that's there was a. There was a news article that I saw just a couple of days ago that someone had fired shots at an indigenous out spearfishing, you know, this year. Yep. So it's, it, it certainly isn't at the um, temperature that it was in the, the 80s and 90s of the walleye wars, but there's still a lot of tension. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's especially pronounced in Canada and the Pacific Northwest, where it's even more so. The one thing that, um, again, biased for the, uh, the Ojibwe communities here in Wisconsin, of course. But they they took it upon themselves to really reach out um, uh, to K through 12, or the K through 12 education system, the colleges, and especially forming an organization known as Glyphwick, uh, the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, which is a joint endeavor with the state of Wisconsin, to educate peoples about this is what we're taking, this is why we're taking, and this is actually um, the ways in which we contribute to environmental sustainability. Uh, with these fish populations and other things. And they've done way more good through that organization known as Glyphwick um, than people give them credit for. Um, but they did that here in Wisconsin. That's one of the reasons why we see the lessening intentions, but there's still there's still that bad blood up there. Well, I'll actually have to look that up, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes when this goes live, because um, I think that would be in a um, institution and uh, group that people should learn more about. Yeah, that would be awesome. They have their own they have their own newsletter that they send out seasonally, so I think quarterly. Uh, yeah. They do a lot of good. You said that you had initially kind of focused on AIM. Um, do you and now you are very solidly and, and uh, a, a recognized scholar of the colonial period, and that is pretty far away from the colonial period, 200 yeah. years. <laughs> do you do you ever see yourself returning and doing any more research on that? I know I'm asking you all these research questions, but I'm just... Oh, that's great. Um, it's interesting, yeah. Like, if you had asked me as an undergrad student, like I was doing the work in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then all of a yeah. sudden I jumped back into early America and the revolution. Um, but that, to me, is one of the beautiful things about Native American history and maybe the most subversive element is that 
I mean, you can't tell U.S. history without Native American history. Exactly. So, I mean, you can't, you simply can't get around that. Native history is U.S. history. U.S. history is Native history. And so that's sort of my end for this stuff. But in terms of the research, um, I have flirted with the idea of moving into the 19th century, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But that would encompass a whole new literature. And yeah. uh, uh, what I'm currently trying to do after this, this next book is sort of demonstrate the interconnections that existed or sort of not just intertribal, but the interconnections that existed or sort of defined Indian country in the 17th and 18th century. And I want to use the connections between the Creeks and the Cherokees as sort of like a temperature gauge for that, sort of like your, your case in point, because I yeah. know they are far extensive and you can write an entire book about them, let alone the connections that go all the way out uh, to the Southwest um, and the Northwest. So I just want to sort of like reveal that picture of Native America. So I don't know if I have time to return uh, to the 20th century, um, but I have flirted with the idea of doing something more local to Milwaukee, um, mm-hmm. maybe something, a project about uh, the Indian Community School at some point. Um, but that itself is very um, sort of a, a fraught process in the community, the Native community itself. So I don't know if that would be something for the future. Um, sure. But I don't know. We'll see what comes the way. Uh, it's never far from my mind, I should say. Okay. Well, I, I am going to throw this out there just because – we happen to be recording this on May 12th, which was the date back in 1879 that the court case, Standing Bear versus Crook, was decided, in which a um, Ponca chief, Standing Bear, sued saying, hey, Native Americans are people and we have rights, and it was actually judged that they that they were a person in the meaning of habeas corpus mm-hmm. and that the federal government had failed to, to show that under law when taking uh, Native peoples into custody. Which, if you think about it, I mean, even, you know, speaking as a historian, that is incredibly a blink. But even as somebody who is not a historian, that's really not that long ago in our nation's history. Um, so when you think about Native Americans, their rights as citizens of this country are really relatively, incredibly relatively shallow. Well, the crazy thing, I mean, way to go for doing research on your part. Way to go. That's awesome. Um, And for knowing that. Uh, But on top of it, I mean, the one thing that really sticks with Native communities to this day, and we haven't even broached the subject, and that's that's a separate podcast for someone who works extensively on boarding schools, and I think that would be a great podcast. Um, but just the complete wiping out of indigenous languages and cultures. And it was only in 19, I think it was either 1978 or 79, I think 78, where um, the United States government passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, yeah. which said, you can practice your actual native religions you've been practicing for centuries, and we won't arrest you or imprison you or fine you. Sure, that and I think was it, my parents' generation. That was yeah. four years before I was born. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if it was '78, I was born. Um, oh uh, my lord! Yeah, I'm old. Oh 76. my lord, <laughs> Centennial, maybe. Um, oh. Yeah, you know, and, and and to that point, you know, uh, I don't think they're acknowledged as citizens until like 1924. So it's or somewhere around in there. So yeah, you know, after 24, you're right. Yeah. Um, there are all kinds of other things that uh, I could talk to you about with your interests and your research. I've had you, we talked a little bit before this and I've had you on here for about an hour. So I, I want to, to let you go because I'm sure you have better things to be doing today than talking to me. But I wanted to express my gratitude, not only for coming on today, but what you've done for me outside of the podcast at the university. Um, and allow you an opportunity to talk about your online presence as much as there is one. If you have anything that you would like to promote or direct my listeners towards that you feel is a worthy resource, please feel free. Great question. Honestly, um, uh, just to take seriously, um, scholars who are doing work in native American history or to give that narrative, just, you know, your basic three minute attention, um, you know, just to talk about the ways in which the land we sit upon used to be native land, right? Simply just acknowledging the fact that this is native land. Um, and that just, 
you know, not, uh, indigenous peoples today are so heavily represented by cultural stereotypes, uh, continually so in the media, uh, that there's a lot of disinformation out there. It's just, um, if you get a chance, just educate yourself a little about uh, some indigenous nations. Um, the biggest thing right now is that with COVID, the Navajo Nation is actually per capita population in the United States outstrips all the U.S. states in terms of those who've been affected by COVID. They have the most cases uh, per capita of their population. And actually, the Doctors with Borders today announced, yeah. yeah, they've never announced that they would do a mission here in the United States, but they just did their first mission, and it's to the Navajo Nation because they're suffering so much from COVID. And just realizing that there's this alternative, not alternative, it's a simultaneous uh, community and history that's unfolding right beside our own, um, that's oftentimes disguised and hidden and sometimes insidiously so. Very well said, yeah. Um, there are still all kinds of battles over sovereignty. Uh, the COVID makes me think of that because in that case, the the I don't remember what state that's in, um, but the governor told them to take down their checkpoints where they were checking people and trying to restrict movement in and out of, of tribal lands, um, which they should have the right to do under treaty acts and everything. Um, yeah, sovereignty. And also, you know, something that is not as prescient as COVID, but it's been going on for a long time, just the disappearance of indigenous women, uh, both here and in Canada. Uh, you know, it's easy to not think of Native Americans for most people because not only do the population numbers and uh, to Dr. Reinfleisch's point about, you know, when we do think of them, it is very much stereotypical, but also just because of the land allocation and where a lot of them live are outside of places where most people think of. Yes. But the, there has been enormous violence against Native communities even to this day. And actually, Ben, now that you say that, I would encourage, if you could, um, I could send you something or post something, um, but there is uh, several coalitions and actually a report that just came out in conjunction with the DOJ uh, reporting how indigenous women suffer um, partner violence, intimate violence, and sexual violence five times greater than any other population wow. in the United States. Yeah, please do. Um, uh, yeah. And you're right, it is, it's an epidemic of violence that has always been there. Uh, it's always been there in the history. Um, but it continually morphs and becomes more nefarious, and especially now, um, where when you talk about sovereignty, you can have um, non-Native men come onto the reservation who are locals, commit a violent act against or a sexual act against a woman, leave the reservation, and never get prosecuted. Yeah. And if you're willing, at some point I would love to have you come back on and continue our conversation, but uh, I want to respect your time and... Um, once again, I thank you for coming on. This has been a great talk. And I, I really am glad that you took the time out today to speak with me now that the semester is over. Anytime, Ben. Anytime. All right. I, I appreciate it. Um, you will find all kinds of links to stuff in the description of this episode. Thank you again for listening to the Working History Podcast. <laughs>